welcome to Chit Chat Money. On this show, hosts Ryan Henderson and Brett Schaefer interview industry experts and riff on the world of investing. As a quick reminder, Chit Chat Money is a CCM Media Group podcast. Ryan and Brett are also general partners at Arch Capital, and Arch Capital may have positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Anything discussed on Chit Chat Money by Ryan or Brett or any other podcast guests is not formal advice or recommendation. Now, please enjoy this episode. Welcome into Chit Chat Money. My name is Brett Schaefer, and I am joined by my co-host, Ryan Henderson. Today is our Tuesday not-so-deep-dive episode where we analyze one stock by covering its business model, ownership, financials, future growth opportunities, and much more. After listening to this episode, we hope you get a better perspective on the company that we are covering. And today, we are moving on to our next theme which is defense and aerospace companies. We got a good mix of three stocks coming up over the next few weeks, and that will be General Dynamics, Rocket Lab, and Boeing. Today, though, we are going to be covering General Dynamics, one of the defense primes, one of the largest defense contractors for the United States government and its allies, as well as the owner of the Gulfstream Jets. Before we get to today's episode, I wanted to remind any listener because throughout this episode, we are going to refer to any charts we make, any graphics that we refer to. We might share the screen for Spotify and YouTube listeners. And if you want to see our note sheet, it you can do so for free by subscribing to our newsletter. The link is in the show notes. It is a great complimentary document to go along with each podcast, especially if you are more interested in the stock that we are covering this week. So as I mentioned, Today, we are covering general dynamics. So Ryan, looks like you got a lot of notes on all their different business segments. Why don't you get into what they do? Yeah. And as Brett mentioned, we've had people, listeners basically say, you know, how do I get a look at the Word document before? In this case, again, it's going to be, there's going to be some visuals just because they're manufacturing a lot of different products. Um, there's going to be some visuals that I uh, laid out as well. We'll we'll try to show them here and I'll try to describe them because I know listeners probably hate that. Um, so I'll try to describe them as well, but just that that newsletter can be helpful. Um, yeah, General Dynamics is basically a multi-purpose engineering and manufacturing company um, working primarily for the US government. And the, the 70% of the revenue comes from the US government, but they've diversified a little bit over the last kind of 20 years or so through an acquisition. Um, but they also service um, like some commercial customers and then uh, US government allies as, as well. But they break their business into four different parts. So they've got aerospace, marine systems, combat systems, and technologies. I'll go through each one. Aerospace, this refers to two different businesses, Gulfstream and Jet Aviation. People might be familiar with Gulfstream because you hear, uh, I think, rich people mention it sometimes where they go, oh yeah, you got a Gulfstream CR 500 or something. Um, Basically, this is one of the world's largest private business jet manufacturers. um, And General Dynamics acquired them in 1999 for $5.3 billion. Today, Gulfstream sells about 120 jets a year, or at least that's what they did last year. and there's a variety of different models. Basically, they're selling to either rich individuals or big companies that want private jets for their executives. Um, and so that's, I mean, that's kind of a straightforward business. The jet aviation segment provides 
basically af- I think it's they call it aftermarket uh, services where after you've bought a jet, you typically need either maintenance, repairs, charter services, um, so someone to kind of fly the jet for you. Um, and jet aviation does that all around the globe. They have fifty plus locations um, where where they help out existing jet owners. That segment accounts for 22% of revenue. The reason I think that segment is important is just because it's diverse. So there have been periods, and I'll, we'll, we'll get into this more throughout the show. There have been periods where um, defense budgets have contracted or whatever, and and that re- that reliance on the U.S. as your sole customer, and I know it's different sub-segments within the U.S. government, but um, having them as your sole customer can lead to contracting periods. And so... Uh, having kind of that commercial revenue at least helps offset it a little bit. The second one here, and and feel free to butt in whenever you want, Brett. Uh, The second one here, and this is Marine Systems. This is kind of where they got their start. Um, And I'll talk about the history here in a little bit, but it refers to General Dynamics's nuclear-powered submarine production business. So they also produce some surface ships like destroyers or um, oilers kind of ships to help other ships, but um, really the the bulk of the revenue comes from their long long standing now production of Virginia class submarines. And then Brett, you're going to talk about this kind of in the future growth opportunity. Um, they're since kind of shifting up. I think it's been since what, 2016, 2017? Uh, I think so. Yeah, it's it's hard. to. They got the full contract, I believe, a little later than that. But it was talked about the new age submarine, as as we all know, as listeners probably know, the government moves slowly. And yeah, they've been talking about this new age project for the submarine class for a while. Yeah. So this new age is going to be called the Columbia class uh, submarines. And basically the way this segment works is, I believe, um, General Dynamics is contracted to deliver two submarines a year. Um, to the U.S. government or, or Department of Defense, Navy, um, Navy in this case, uh, and and they're basically paid on the production side. They're paid a fixed fixed price contract, which I'll I'll, I'll go into a little bit more. But um, this segment as a whole accounts for twenty eight percent of revenue, and it typically generates eight to nine percent operating margins. I'm curious, did you think it would be higher prior to looking at it? Well, at first reading, I thought it would be higher margin just because I understand that the typically these defense contracts can have 10 to 20% margins, um, although it can change for different types of projects. However, I think it makes sense that their margins have contracted a bit because they are really ramping up the project production for the Columbia class. And once that gets to a steady state, I would expect the margins to inflect higher. I did talk to someone before the show, uh, one of our fellow workers at the Motley Fool, Lou Whiteman or Whitman, Whiteman, Whiteman. Um, Whiteman. And he said, yeah, he follows these companies closely, the defense contractors. So I wanted to say, hey, like, you know, someone who's followed these a long time, what do you think about their operating margin for marine systems? Is it going to go higher once this Columbia class gets in uh, full production? And he said, definitely, because there's the upfront costs and then the way it works from the revenue recognition and how they, you know, generate their earnings on the fixed um, you know, as the contract kind of fully rolls in and, and they do all the services under the contract, then the margin should go higher. But I guess it's a big to be determined on what those steady state margins will get to. Again, then the third segment here is combat systems. This basically refers to 
general dynamics sale of tanks, or they like to call it land combat solutions. And I guess that's a fair kind of catch-all because um, it's not just tanks that they're delivering. Some of these are tanks like tracked vehicles, but also, um, and but when I say tracked, I just mean like it's it's not running on wheels. It's running on sort of like that that track that you think of when you see a tank. Um, but then they also have wheeled combat vehicles. And there's really two products here that the U.S. Army um, that they're the sole producer of for the U S army. And that's the Abrams battle tank and the striker wheeled combat vehicle. I've, I've included a little, uh, visual here that they have in their 10 K that shows all the different vehicles. Um, and I mean, it's, it's a pretty diverse offer offering. And then they also have, they, they sell some like sophisticated weapon weapon systems. So not necessarily vehicles, uh, like heavy machine guns, grenade launchers, that kind of thing. Um, this accounts for only 18% of revenue. So it's smaller than the Marine systems, but it has higher operating margins, at least currently, as, as Brett mentioned, maybe Marine systems will change. Um, but yeah, it's 14 to 15% operating margins in this segment. Last one I'll talk about here is technologies. I'll be honest. I, I don't know the nitty gritty of this segment at all. And I think they are probably discreet or kind of, um, it's not really different. Yeah. And it's really diversified. It's a lot of different, it's basically technology. You have a lot of notes here, but it's basically technology and, uh, you know, new technology consulting for government agencies as they try to modernize. Yeah. And there's, it's, I mean, there's 40,000 employees in the segment. There's uh, a number of the businesses under this umbrella have probably been acquired. They've been big acquirers over the last 30, 40 years. Um, and so it really is a number of different businesses. I'm going to steal a quote from the 10K um, just to kind of highlight why this is an important segment. It says, over the past decade, a the U.S. government basically has increasingly prioritized technology solutions as a critical element of their missions. COVID-19, the cyber threat landscape, and demand for advanced warfighter connectivity have accelerated these trends, adding urgency to required technology investments. Basically, a lot of these investments going into both IT, the hardware, the software, are getting contracted out to some of the uh, subsidiaries of General Dynamics, um, and that's this is the largest segment for them. It's thirty-two percent of revenue. Typically, generates around ten percent operating margins. Um, biggest so it's mar- an important big, one, yeah. Biggest earning contributor. I was surprised to see that last year. I mean, it's pretty close. All of them generate around a billion in earnings. And again, for the newsletters uh, subscribers to check out, you should check out the charts we'll have for that. It shows the historical trends for all these segments. But yeah, it, one point two billion in earnings from from this segment. I was kind of surprised. Yeah, and the, the last thing that's really important to mention here is around basically the billings process. So, like I mentioned, sales to the U.S. government account for seventy percent of General Dynamics' billings. Um, however, those sales are typically paid for in one of three ways: either fixed price contracts, which accounts for the majority, cost reimbursement contracts, which is the second largest, and then time and materials, which is usually pretty small. But most of their production contracts are fixed price. This means that they agree, General Dynamics will agree to perform some specific piece of work and they're paid a fixed amount for it. That means General Dynamics is taking a little risk in that if they're going to get margin, they have to be efficient on their side, as opposed to a cost reimbursement contract, which are uh, more like the services and maintenance stuff where they will pay, the government will just pay whatever the cost is, plus a little 
added margin. So um, I don't know, I guess it's a riskier, the, the margins and the profits are a little more at risk than I initially thought coming in. I figured it would have just been like they, General Dynamics bills the government for whatever their costs were, and then they add whatever, uh, yeah, the, some revenue to get some margin. Yeah, you hear the complaints about the defense contractors having the cost plus model, which can lead to inflated costs over time. And you know, generally, people in the public dislike that. But from a business perspective, that can be quite advantageous. General Dynamics for 56% of their business. And I do have a chart over time. It's been pretty close to in between 50 to 60% of their revenue has been fixed price. So it's actually not what you may have assumed uh, before looking at this company. All right. As for the history, General Dynamics, I thought this was kind of interesting to go back to. General Dynamics roots date back all the way to the late 1800s. So there was a gentleman named John Holland who had developed designs for a submersible ship AKA a submarine. Um, and he developed a company around it called the Holland Torpedo Boat Company. And in 1899, I loved I, I, I loved old company names. Like it's very descriptive, not these. There weird was yeah, there was uh, our, Yeah, our our friend on financial Twitter, Lawrence Hamtel, who funny enough covers these type of companies and has a good blog post we'll link in the show notes, said that if companies like QuantumScape called themselves American Battery. Uh, this is a bit of a joke. He said the bubble wouldn't have happened because if you just called them like the old time companies, uh, they're not as sexy sounding. Yeah, that's true. Um, anyway, so he, he in 1899, uh, he sold his company to Isaac Rice and Isaac Rice changed the company to the Electric Boat Company, which is still around today. It's basically a subsidiary Um of General Dynamics. Uh, but starting in 1900, the electric boat company began selling their submarines to the US Navy. And as people can probably imagine, the next basically 45 years were quite lucrative for the electric boat company since they were, you know, there was quite a lot of wars um, or quite a lot of fighting going on. And so, in fact, in World War II, electric boat company produced a total of 80 submarines for the Navy, which is a pretty staggering figure. Um, considering that it's like it's two a year in today's world. And I imagine our manufacturing and production capabilities are a little more advanced. Um, so there, there was really a lot of volume and a lot of um, demand for the electric boat company's products back then. However, after the war, General Dynamics had a whole bunch of cash and basically no orders. I think they downsized their workforce by like 75%. Um, so they began looking for acquisition targets to kind of try to, you know, do something with the cash on hand. And in 1947, they acquired Canada Air. And that was kind of a big shift in strategy. And they started to really move towards aircraft production. And at the time, I mean, you're if you're selling aircrafts and your company's name is the electric boat company, it doesn't really make a whole lot of sense. So in 1952, as aircraft production kind of grew, they changed the name to General Dynamics. A year after they bought Convair, which I believe does aircraft manufacturing, once again, for the US government. Um, and from that point on, it's been basically just this long history of new acquisitions, divestitures, um, and kind of this constant shift of what they're manufacturing. But the theme has always been that the bulk of the sales go to the US government. They're doing contracting on behalf of the government. Um, and then there's been like some commercial uh, businesses all throughout. 
in the early 1990s in particular, there was a period when defense budgets started to contract. Um, and that led to General Dynamics having to divest a big chunk of its business. Um, and I, I think they kept divesting assets until around 1994 was the last time they did it. They had a space division at that point, um, which they divested. And then since 1994, it's been pretty much all acquisitions. 1999, they acquired um, uh, Gulfstream. Gulfstream. Yeah. And then, like I said, there's been a lot of... like If you go through the historical page on General Dynamics website, it's just acquisition, 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 one after the other. So a lot of them have been kind of just integrated into the technologies um, segment, but yeah, that's, that's kind of the history. It's, they have a really long standing relationship with the U S government, I think is the important part to understand here. And once you've been working with the U S government for more than a hundred years, I'd say you've really established a trusted brand. Yeah, for sure. And for reference, this has been quite the lucrative business for shareholders. It is a thousand bagger uh, one of the, you know, I guess we can put that them and Monster Energy as the 2000 beggars we've covered over the years. Maybe Boeing has been as well, but we'll talk, talk about that when we get to them. But yeah, it's been a thousand beggar since the 1970s. But let me hit the industry and competition. It's pretty simple, but also a bit complex because as Ryan mentioned, there's a lot of geopolitical stuff that can affect demand. Uh, but they operate in two markets, defense contracting and private slash business aviation. The private aviation market is estimated to be about $30 billion a year and is projected to steadily grow this decade. The question I had, though, is how how much is this tied to the stock market, the private aviation cycle? And I think it's going to be fairly tied to it. While you know, rich people are still going to buy private jets, I think if the stock market is at an all-time high, they're probably going to buy a few more in that book-to-bill ratio. Uh, is going to be a bit higher. And then, and we'll talk about the what book-to-bill ratio is when we get to earnings, because that is an important note for anyone looking at this company. It's fairly easy to understand, but they're going to reference it a lot as a, uh, the management team is. Yeah. The other thing that was probably a good tailwind for the business was COVID. Uh, rich people didn't want to sit next to other people on planes after uh, uh, kind of widespread illness. So they ended up, there was probably a better conversion in terms of who was buying jets yeah. The other thing I'm thinking is maybe the degradation or the decline in kind of comfort of commercial flights over the years has been a boon to private jet maybe. purchases. Maybe, but I don't know if these people are were the ones flying economy. I think they were probably flying in first class, which seems to be still pretty, yeah, darn, pretty darn nice. However, I'm guessing, and uh, they probably don't know this, but I'm thinking they don't like Charlie Munger very much because they're like, you're worth a few billion dollars and you still fly. You won't fly private. Come on, get yourself a nice private jet. And he, and he He'd fly net. He would fly net jets anyway, so it doesn't matter. Yeah, that, that's that's <laughs> fair point. That's fair point. But uh, back to the actual notes. Gulfstream generated around eight and a half billion in revenue last year, so they're one of the leading brands and probably the leading brand in private aviation. Moving to defense contracting, the industry, which I'd say maybe it's an industry, but it's a very unique one, obviously. The most important customer is the U.S. government, which is closing in on $1 trillion in annual defense spending. Uh, General Dynamics is going to sell products to U.S. allies for uh, as well. Um, for example, they're doing a nuclear submarine deal with Australia, but they're not going to be selling to adversaries or frenemies like China. You know, Russia, Iran, and stuff like that. I will share quickly a chart showing how important the US government is for them as a customer. 
and we're loading it up here, it shows just comparatively, and people have probably, so many people have seen these charts before, um, it shows U.S. government defense spending versus all the other large companies out there. And the U.S. government is about the same size as China, Russia, India, Saudi Arabia, United Kingdom, Germany, France, South Korea, Japan, and Ukraine combined. So they are the most important company customer by far and will be for at least the next few decades. Um, let's see. Anything else in industry and competition? Let's see. Yeah, I mean – in a broader sense, they have a lot of competitors because there are a lot of defense contractors out there. There's Lockheed Martin, Raytheon, Northrop Grumman, Boeing, et cetera, et cetera. There's lots of them. Now, General Dynamics is one of the big ones, one of the top five. They are ranked third in U.S. defense spending as you know percentage of all these contractors. They get approximately 5.2% of the defense budget allocated to them, and that is in 2020. But on a narrower sense, some of the product lines from General Dynamics and their defense section have minimal or zero competition. And from this case, I would say the nuclear submarines essentially have zero competition. And then the Abrams tanks and some of the more specialized stuff might have minimal competition where they're really, when they're looking for a contract for the nuclear subs, it's almost like, all right, you're, you can't choose anyone else. No one else can build these. So you're going to choose us. And then with the Abrams tanks, there's probably very few people, but then in the munitions and technology uh, segments, maybe some of the other stuff that they sell, I would guess there are a wide range of competitors out there. And especially with consulting, that's probably more of a competitive market. But <laughs> as we've seen last year, at least it generated the most earnings for them. All right, let's move to management ownership. Let's make this one quick because it's not too important, but I want to talk about how the proxy statement was pretty solid. So they have the CEO and chairperson of the board is Phoebe Novakovic. Uh, she has been the CEO since 2013 and has been with General Dynamics since 2002. Long running management team. That's nice. Um, I want to mention that the board of directors does have 13 members and they pay each other all $300,000 a year. For a company this size, it's not going to matter much. And I bet these people provide some value to this business, but I don't like when they, you know, when board of directors get paid such a healthy salary for not doing very much. Um, moving to executive compensation and incentives, I generally liked them. It was really, you know, Usually it's pretty poor when, when we look at these stuff. You have adjusted EBITDA, you have revenue targets. It's never per share stuff. And for them, uh, their annual bonuses, at least for the executive team, are based on earnings per share growth, free cash flow, and operating margin targets, which I thought was pretty, you know, pretty good. Uh, I would the one thing I would note though is if you really care about these in executive incentives and that sort of stuff, if that's very important to your investment thesis, I would check the changes in hurdles that they give themselves each year because sometimes they might lower it, sometimes they might raise it, and that can indicate how optimistic they are about their business over the next few years because they do typically want to meet these hurdles. Uh, but overall, I think these are good incentives. And then if we look at their long-term stock awards, also pretty solid. Um, some of them were just kind of given away as stock options, but they had these performance stock units and you can look at the details, but generally they're based on total shareholder return and return on invested capital hurdles over a three-year time period. And the current ROIC hurdle is 12.6%, which again, I think is solid. If we look at overall uh, nominally, the executive compensation is pretty healthy, but not crazy for a company of this side. Novakovic got $21 million last year. The CFO got $7 million and the division leads all got a few million dollars, which 
Again, I don't think they're complaining, but is not as egregious as some of the other large cap companies. And since moving on to ownership here, since this is an old company, the insiders only own 1.5% of the stock, a large chunk that comes from Novakovich. But I thought, interestingly, when we look at outside investors, unlike some of the other large caps we've covered, they actually have a decent chunk of stock owned by what look like our active managers like Longview Capital Management, Newport Trust Company, and Wellington Management. I don't know whether that means anything, but it could be helpful to not just have a pure indexed, you know, shareholder base. And if you want the actual details on that, that will be in the shareholder letter. We have a table of all the big shareholders, but that's going to cover management and ownership. Ryan, why don't we move on to their numbers? Talk about the earnings, what you saw from them financially over the last year. Yeah. So for context on full year numbers, they do about 39 in 2022, they did $39 billion in revenue for the full year about $4.2 billion in operating income. So, and this this is fluctuated a little bit as they go through big investment cycles, but it, the last year it was an 11% operating margin. It could sometimes be a little bit higher, but I think generally think low teens operating margins for this business. Um, operating cash flow is $4.6 billion. Keep in mind though, they do have, you know, this is very uh, CapEx intensive business. So they have about just over a billion in capex, so three and a half billion dollars in free cash flow, fairly similar to their gap net income. Um, and then, in terms of kind of capital allocation, they they buy back stock pretty regularly and they issue dividends. They are probably that's probably why most shareholders own them, um, at least over if you've been a holder for a long time, because they've done. And I, I think Brett, you you were the one that brought this up. They've increased. Their dividend by twelve percent annually since nineteen ninety. Is that right? That is correct. And shares outstanding are down since then. So on a per share basis, it's even better. Uh, I will have that chart in the newsletter as well. Yeah, and then most recent quarter revenue is growing about five percent. Um, earnings basically growing in line a little, maybe slightly less. Uh, they, they cited some supply chain issues as a as an issue, um, and then. Operating cash flow really outpaced earnings. Um, sometimes you get, and a big thing to track here is the customer backlog. And so the backlog can either be orders that are unfunded or customer advanced orders where they pay up front. And the funded orders, so the percentage of the backlog that's been funded already has grown by a lot over the last couple of years. And so you get sort of this positive working capital advantage where operating cash flow looks a lot better than the gap earnings um, because those significant customer advances. Um, the other thing that's worth tracking is the book to bill ratio. So this is the ratio of orders received to the actual units shipped or billed for. And so um, that was at 0 0.9. That's actually down a little bit relative to the last kind of year or so, it's it's generally above one. You want to see that number kind of creep back up above one because it indicates sort of future demand and, and future revenue for this business. Yeah. You defined, yeah, what that was? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, all right. Balance sheet? Yeah. Pretty straightforward balance sheet. $2 billion in cash, $10.5 billion in total debt. Most of it's long-term. Most of it's dated out past 2027. So long maturities. Uh, the weighted average 
interest rate is just over 3% and it's pretty much all just fixed rate debt. So really clean, um, low cost. And like I said earlier, they generate over $4 billion in operating income annually. So net debt of eight and a half versus $4 billion in operating income, it's basically net debt to annual earnings uh, ratio of two times. So not that steeply levered here. Um, not very, they yeah, actually, they're, not, they're not that aggressive. Yeah. Yeah. They also, I, I mean, they were aggressive when they should be because they, they were able to raise really low cost debt kind of throughout the last uh, three years. So kind of kudos to them during that time period. hundred percent. All right, let's move to the valuation. I'll keep this one quick because again, valuation is complex. Uh, it's not just uh, earnings multiple, but just for the context, we'll, we'll take this up quickly just for anyone that's interested. Current market cap's about $58 billion. Add back on the neck debt, we're about at $67 billion for an enterprise value. And then the earnings ratio I was looking at, which is taking the enterprise value, and then I combined all the operating segments, their earnings, and just added that for kind of a combined, you know, operating earnings number. So their EV to combined segment operating earnings or really kind of their operating earnings is about 15 and a half. Um, so a little bit below the market average on that front. However, I would note that you might want to discount this earnings multiple a bit because it does not include taxes or interest expenses, which are you know going to be meaningful for them. And it does not include some corporate overhead. So if they're trading at 15 and a half times their operating earnings, they're maybe trading at uh, near the market multiple if it's around 20. Um, so it doesn't mean it's technically cheap in, in that regard. But let's move on to anecdotal evidence. Ryan, what do you think? How many nuclear submarines and Abrams tanks have you <laughs> driven in your life, right? Uh, yeah, I'm not uh, I'm not their ideal customer, I don't think. Um, no, not I a consumer. Zero. Yeah, not a consumer product unless, I guess, the Gulf Streams. Yeah, and I haven't bought one of those either. Maybe if... Uh, Maybe if the show does really well, well. yeah, we get get a few more <laughs> listeners, right? We just need to maybe maybe a couple more people to listen. Yeah, that would that that should put us over the edge. Um, no, I obviously no experience with their product, but just in kind of trying to assess gut feel of the business, it feels like the incumbents the incumbents in the defense industry are so advantaged not only because there's like the know how of of engineering these products and the um, being the sole producer, but also like working at a place like this. I mean, we live near one of the big um, marine systems production bases uh, for General Dynamics. In, it's in Bremerton, Washington. And you have to have like, there's so much clearance stuff, so many different regulatory processes in being a contractor for the US government, especially one where it's weapon systems, um, that it it's got to be so hard to be like an emerging company in that industry because you have to invest so much and try to replace a customer that the government knows and trusts and has worked with for a long time. And it's such like um, the government has to be so cautious who they, who they deal with in these um, in this respective industry. Yep. Agreed. I'm going to hit anecdotal evidence for Gulfstream again, like Ryan, uh, you'll be surprised to hear I have not written in one, but it seems like Gulfstream is the top brand in private, you know, jets. It, I 
that's the one that people talk about. That's the one that anyone references offhand. It's sort of like the, you know, quote unquote, Kleenex of the private jet brand uh, industry. And I think that will hopefully give them durability and customer demand. It'll give them customer loyalty over the next few decades and beyond, especially as they bring out some of these new jets, which I don't know if we're going to specifically talk about them on the show, but they do have quite a few coming down the pipe over the next few years. All right. Future growth opportunities. Ryan, what do you got for us? Yeah, I feel like, I mean, the, the, I, there was one of two really big growth opportunities you could take here, which, well, I guess you could talk about some of the new Gulfstream jets or like new potential products, but I don't have a whole lot of value to provide there. I, I think the new federal budget is ultimately going to be a big tailwind for this business. Um, so around July of last year, the House voted to pass a bill that boosted the national security budget to $850 billion a year. That's a, up $72 billion relative to last year. So a 9% increase in the national security budget. Um, apparently, this was well above Biden's initial proposal. Um, lawmakers cited inflation, the Ukraine invasion, and concerns about China as the primary reasons to up the spending. I, th- I think that's kind of makes sense if you've been keeping up with the geopolitical news. Um, I know it's kind of a depressing growth opportunity, but if the government feels compelled to invest more in the defense budget for whatever reason, uh, it's going to be a tailwind for general dynamics. Yeah. And just think about the flip side, when the Cold War ended in the early 90s, that's when their demand fell off a cliff and a lot of the, the companies saw a really, really you know, decrease in revenue. If the opposite is occurring and there's you know perceived or real threats out there, uh, there's going to be increase in defense spending. And maybe just talk about a little more. There's In the last 40 years, there haven't really been a lot of periods where defense spending declined. It's really only, as Brett mentioned, kind of that late 80s to early 90s time period. It is inflation proof. Yeah. Yeah. The the defense budget as a percentage of GDP is at an all-time low, basically. So it's really come down steeply. So they they do kind of have the capacity to expand that, I I would think, uh, versus like 30 years ago. so I think there's two numbers to kind of worth that are worth tracking there, not just like pure defense budgets, but as, as a percentage of GDP. Yeah, for sure. For sure. All right. My future growth opportunity is going to be the big one for this business that we've already talked about, and that is the new Columbia class submarine. So let me just give a little bit more context for the listeners and why this is going to be important. So this is going to replace the aging nuclear submarines in the U.S. Navy arsenal uh, that I believe about 40 years old now. An electric boat is going to run around 78% of the construction for these projects and has essentially locked down production through at least 2042. However, I think we can assume that it's going to be much longer than that. As one of the only shipyards in the world that can build these, there really isn't much of a choice for who the U.S. Navy is going to choose here. And I ran a, well, in the newsletter, I said a very simple analysis. Uh, It was basically just taking the current earnings for marine systems and then having it grow by 5% a year as their operating margin hopefully increases and then as the Columbia class comes online. so. If that happens, um, and 5% a year through 2042, through the end of these contracts, right? If that happens, they will lead. that would lead them to generate $32 billion in cumulative operating income from now until then. How much is that worth today? Uh, you know, some of that earnings is going to be coming 15 to 20 years from now. But again, that's a pretty sizable earnings base from 
a market cap of what is it today? 57 billion enterprise value of no, it was 59 enterprise value is 67 billion at today's prices. And would I, I wouldn't call that. I mean, nothing's a hundred percent guarantee, but is this some of the most predictable earnings you could ever have Ryan? I think it's like, I'm hard to, it's hard to see how this doesn't materialize. Obviously 5% isn't the number that it's going to be, but it's, it's going to grow and it's going to be there. I, I wouldn't necessarily call the earnings the most predictable because of the fixed price contract nature and it's like dependent on their ability to be yeah, efficient with fair. costs, but the, the revenue, I mean, it's, yeah, it's locked in. Yeah, it's not, it, it's not, you know, it's not these kind of, these aren't it's side projects. much more predictable uh, than, you know, your typical software business or anything like that. Yeah. And even within the defense contract, it, it, this is the most predictable because here's a quote from just a document that we saw outlining the Columbia class program. They said, quote, as the Navy's top priority, the Columbia class program will remain funded even at the expense of funding other Navy programs. So this is really maybe the first maybe the first couple things on the defense budget that are going to get funded so even if there's a decrease in overall spending these are the things that are going to uh the columbia class is going to get their money all right highlights and lowlights ryan what do you like what do you dislike about this business seems like this is a pretty simple one i'm sure we have the same the same highlights and lowlights here yeah i mean it's very predictable revenue streams that's that's always nice um it leads to a little less volatility I think, and in terms of the stock price, um, and then obviously their largest customer has a clear interest in General Dynamics being well compensated, being a well-run business. You know that they they want to make sure General Dynamics succeeds, and so that's always nice. Um, capital returns to shareholders have been great over the last decade. I mean, they've primarily driven the returns. So share count has come in by twenty-two percent, and dividends have more than doubled. Um, that I, I really like that they're just like fairly straightforward with their capital returns. They don't, I don't know, they don't make it too complicated. Um, other highlights, I guess the, I mean, I already mentioned it, like just the trust for general dynamics. They're probably going to get a lot of the new contracts um, because the government knows what they'll get with, with general dynamics. They're not taking a risk on like a new contractor. Um, and then the, I, I, I like that uh, Gulfstream diversifies the revenue somewhat. If there is any sort of a budget contraction, at least um, there's kind of a buffer there in that commercial revenue might be a buoy. Uh, do you think? Do you think Gulfstream is good business? Yeah, I don't. I mean, I, I might not own it into like if it were just on its own. It would but, have to be a heavy, big discount. Yeah. Yeah. It seems like a good business, not a great one. It's a good, I mean, it's a great brand, um, but yeah, I just don't necessarily like the economics of those big manufacturing companies. Um, so it, it, I don't know. I, I, I kind of treat it like Boeing. Maybe. Yeah. Even maybe a little worse, to be honest. Yeah. Low lights for me though on the business, just earnings growth over the last decade. And I know uh, Brett mentioned that maybe it's been a bit of an investment period. Um, I'm sorry, not over the last decade, but over the last five years. Earnings growth has been pretty meager, kind of lackluster. It's it's up seven percent roughly earnings before interest and taxes uh, over the last five years in total. So, um, I think you got to believe that 
there's going to be a little bit of margin expansion over the next five years in order for you to want to own shares at this price. Um, and then the other low light is just the obviously the ties to the defense budget. We saw what happens in the 1990s, what can happen if those budgets come in. And um, it, I don't think it's likely, given that it's at such a low percentage of GDP versus the defense yeah. budget overall uh, Plus, versus like know, the 1990 time period. And yeah. sorry, sorry. Yeah, and there's geopolitical stuff. So yeah, like yeah. right now it doesn't seem like it, but if three years, you know, some of this stuff were resolved, maybe budgets come in a bit. Yeah. Sorry. I was going to say, I was uh, kept thinking you were done talking, but the, uh, yeah, I was going to mention the same thing. Uh, 10 years from now, is China more aggressive or less aggressive as a geopolitical adversary for the United States government? That's a very tough question to ask and not one that as our financial analysts, we can be certain of. I don't think anyone could be certain of that. But if I had to bet, I would go in the camp of saying there would be more aggressive and that would lead to higher defense spending from the U.S. Navy and the U.S. other uh, Department of Defense companies. All right. My highlights, anything different from you? I, I do think the Marine system segment is really top notch. I mean, it's highly predictable maybe the most predictable defense segment out of any of the contractors, although we're no experts on all these companies, and it is a monopoly. I don't think you can ask for much more. Yeah, it's not going to be a super fast score, but this is almost guaranteed earnings and revenue. But as Ryan mentioned, the flip side is they do have a lot of fixed con price contracts there. Um, and yeah, you already talked about the capital return strategy and the brand relationships with the Department of Defense. I like those as well. They have grown their dividend payout by 12% a year since 1991, and their shares outstanding are down, so the dividend per share is up even more. Lowlights, though, yeah, I will mention the fixed contracts. Again, over half of the business is on these fixed-cost contracts. We talked about how these are different than the what maybe people generally dislike are these cost-plus contracts that can lead to a lot of overruns in costs, but... These are riskier for the defense contractor because you're going to get the fixed payment from the government, but you don't know how much it's going to cost. Yeah, you're going to probably you know, have a good understanding giving their decades of expertise in manufacturing these things, but you never know. It just adds a little bit more risk. And then I think my other highlight, and this is more of a long-term one, is I believe it would be tough for us as investors to identify any deterioration in technological capabilities or the potential of losing a government contract maybe outside of the nuclear submarines. Because right now, there's a big narrative around these new defense contractors, these startups like, and, and uh, I can never say the name, but the, the most famous one is Anduril, um, A-N-D-U-R-I-L. They keep getting a lot of funding from venture capitalists. They keep getting some new contracts. Yeah, there's a lot of money to go around. But, you know, over the long term, how much can they step on General Dynamics' toes? How much can they step on these older defense contractors' toes? It's not going to happen overnight, but I think it would be a pretty hard to know when General Dynamics is going to lose one of these contracts. I would have no idea. And, and again, it just happens overnight. Oh, our backlog is just destroyed. Oh, we lost this contract. Sorry. Like it, it's I guess, yeah. Away. It's probably, if you continue to see that book-to-bill ratio drop, that's an, an indicator, but it's... I mean, it's it can happen quick if it's like big contracts. Right, because then they have the contract and then when it gets renewed, oh, we want for someone else. All right, let's move to the bull case to wrap things up, Ryan. What do you think has to happen for the stock to do well over the next, say, decade? Well, if 
geopolitical concerns or tensions persist or even worsen over the next five years, I, I mean, it's, that would be an unfortunate world to live in, but gen, I think general dynamics would benefit in terms of yeah. new bookings. The Eastern European customers have been buying a bunch of these tanks. Yeah. Yeah. That would be obviously a nice tailwind for the bookings. And then if we, I think if you believe that this is a big investment period and the operating margins can maybe expand to like 12 or 13% as opposed, or maybe even higher um, over the next five years, that's going to lead to much better operating earnings growth over the next five than the last five. Um, and you think about it, I mean, over the, even over the last five, the stock hasn't done that poorly and earnings before interest and taxes are up almost flat, basically. So um, I think that is kind of a testament to that, uh, the capital return strategy. I, I think basically, if you get 5% bookings growth and a little bit of margin expansion here, plus the dividend, you're, uh, you're going to have a good next five years. The yeah. ceiling's not that high. Well, the ceilings, I mean, as a company of this large cap, that's not in a industry where they can, you know, one of the big tech companies or something like that, where they can just have a huge amount of revenue and earnings there. Yeah, it's not going to be that high, but it's one of those where it can, I think if you buy at the right price over the long term, it can sneakily turn into a thousand bagger, right? Especially if the capital return strategy is sound. Um, but yeah, I, I think my bull case is similar. Again, we're at over 15 times operating earnings here, which again, I'll, I'll talk about this during the bear case uh, and look at their earnings yield. We are had a pretty high uh, compared to the historical averages for how where they trade. I think if you want to own the stock today, you need to be confident in three things. Ryan outlined these as well. Steady revenue growth at about 5% plus a year. Steady margin expansion as all the stuff we outlined in the show, and then consistent repurchases and dividends, which I think is probably a lock. If this happens, I think the stock likely does well over the next two decades, but the key here is the margin expansion and how much, how, how much it's going to be. All right, let's move to the bear case. What could go wrong here, Ryan? It looks like you have the defense budget stuff. Yeah, I mean, that's always one of the obvious risks. The other one, like you mentioned, would be that there is maybe other well-funded, well-funded competitors um, that end up getting some of the contracts. I, I don't know. I think if I had to bet whether the backlog is higher or lower in the next in five years for General Dynamics, I would say I, I think pretty confidently you could say it's probably going to be larger. Um, but like you know, if Basically, if billings come in, um, it's going to be tough for uh, General Dynamics to generate any really solid returns for shareholders. I think you'll still get the dividend. You could probably get maybe a little bit of growth, just kind of like inflation level growth, which maybe if inflation is really high, you get better <laughs> growth. But um, I don't know. Low down. I think it's like a low downside, low upside scenario. You're probably going to get mid teens or mid percent mid single digit percentage returns over the next five years would be my bet. Yeah. Yeah. I think it depends on again, the margin is the key one. If that goes high, much higher than maybe we're assuming, then the returns could be better. But yeah, I think look, I will caveat my bear case as I uh, for anyone that owns this stock. Uh, I think it's one where if you're looking to just never lose money, I think I struggle to think I one really loses money over time. And maybe that's the best way to invest. However, given the low earnings yield versus its historical average result, hit on next. 
I think there is kind of the cliched risk of multiple compression. If you have low growth and, you know, they lose a, a little customer contracts outside of the monopoly businesses, I, I, I could see them not growing revenue much, margins not growing that much, and then the multiple comes in and you don't really make much money outside of the dividends. And I want to share, let me just get the full screen up here and then I will share the thing. I'll, I'll describe it for the listeners, pretty easy to understand. So if you look at their earnings yield, which for anyone that doesn't know is the inverse of the priced earnings. So it's basically how much in earnings they're yielding. It's just taking you know earnings divided by price instead of price divided by earnings. If you look at today, their earnings yield uh, compared to the, we're not including Q1 here, um, is 4.9%. And if we look at kind of back in 2020, 2021, they're closer to 6 to 7%. And then right during the GFC, they were closer to 10%. And then kind of in the 2000s, we're in the 5 to 6 to 7% range. And then in the early 90s, they were a little higher because of everyone's uh, concerns over you know the declining defense budgets after the Cold War. Um, but we're, we're really close outside of a period where they had negative one, which I would probably disregard. We're at a pretty close to an all-time high on their earnings uh, ratio Maybe, you know, people are pricing in that margin expansion, but I think there is that risk here um, for a company that's not as, you know, dynamic as other, you know, where it's a very predictable business. So when the earnings yield is like this, I think it can indicate maybe we're, there's a bit of a flight to safety right now for stocks like this consent, you know, similar to the consumer staples we studied last month. Yeah, I agree. All right. More or less interested. What do you think? I'm more interested. I think at the right price, these are very, again, it's got to be a little lower than this, but at the right price, these are just guaranteed returns. And I think at an earnings ratio on the operating earnings, which again was different than the earnings yield we were just looking at, it's going to be a little lower. I think at an operating earnings of maybe if we're at 10 times, I'm pretty darn interested in this one just because I like some of the businesses here. However, this is not one I'm willing to pay up for. What do you think? Yeah, I agree. I, I, I'm just not really just, I think mostly because of the price right now, I'm just not that interested, honestly. Like it, it would take a huge contraction um, or at least multiple uh, contraction for me to get excited. Um, and then just in general, it's not, if you're looking for fun with your investments, if you like, like volatility, uh, you're probably going to yeah. want to fish elsewhere. But um I mean, obviously, it's a very high quality business and the earnings are super predictable. So if there is, for some reason, a mispricing, um, yeah, it would be, I think, worth digging in again. 100%. All right. That's going to do it for this episode. We do one of these every Tuesday, if you don't know. So follow the show on either Spotify, Apple, or YouTube, and you can get updated on it. Give us a, uh, if you want you know, the newsletter, like we mentioned, the link for that will be in the show notes, or you can search Chit Chat Money on Substack. Give us a review on Spotify or Apple Podcast if you like the show. That is the best way to support us. Uh, remember, we are not financial advisors. Anything that we say on the show is not formal advice or recommendation. We are general partners at Arch Capital and clients may hold securities discussed in this podcast. Next week, we're covering Rocket Lab. The week after, we're covering Boeing to get some more defense and aerospace companies. Thank you, everyone, for listening. We'll see you next time. 